Well, good morning. Let me invite you to remain standing. I'm sorry to cut our greeting time short today. Today we're continuing our study in the book of Acts, the story of the church. Last week, Paul beautifully talked about the gospel in our work, which was very fitting for Labor Day weekend. Today we're going to go back a little bit in the story to Acts chapter 15. Many commentators call this chapter the hinge in the book of Acts because the church has to decide what is our core identity going to be. The theme is still relevant to us today. Let's just jump right in. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they, all declared, uh, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, "'Brothers,' Listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by My name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old." Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generation, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. Skipping to 32. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they went off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this first ecumenical council at Jerusalem. We ask, Lord, would we follow its teachings? 
Would we be those who prioritize the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be saved by that grace. Give us ears to hear that grace, to relish it, to enjoy it, to rest in it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So when my family was living in Scotland, one of the things that we loved to do together was we loved to go and visit castles. I still remember some of those castles. There was Donater, which was an old ruin near Aberdeen, and in it was hid the crown jewels. And there was Stirling Castle that guarded the highlands, and Edinburgh Castle that looked over that city. There was one castle that we loved visiting the most. It was Balmoral Castle and all of its grounds. Balmoral, as some of you probably know, is still a royal residence to this day. So one day, beautiful summer weather in Scotland, which meant it was about 65 degrees and drizzly, we hopped in the car and we drove down to Balmoral Castle. And as we got up to the gate, a man in a very nice suit and one of those radios in his ear came up and met us at the car. And we rolled the window down and said, hi, we'd like to visit the castle grounds today. And he only said one word to us in the poshest, well-bred, eaten accent that you could ever say, closed. <laughs> so we kind of sat there for a second. Oh, I, well, I thought Balmoral was open to closed. Said it again. Finally, we realized what was happening. Oh, the queen must be in red closed. <laughs> Now, inevitably, anytime my family meets some sort of barrier, someone will say, closed. <laughs> of course, it's, I'm sorry if there are any Brits in the audience today. <laughs> of course, it's understandable that the queen in residence would make visiting Balmoral impossible. Her guards couldn't allow just any riffraff in to see her. We guard things that are important to us. The British sovereign is obviously guarded. We guard our monuments. We guard our country from invaders. Personally, we guard our houses with locks. We guard our bank accounts with good passwords, hopefully. We guard our time from too many things going on. When we get to our passage today, the early church has to make a choice about what to guard. What is the most precious thing that the church needs to guard? Is it the heritage of their religion, the Jewish culture, and everything that goes with it? Or is it something more intangible, uncontrollable, unseen, and powerful? Thankfully, for all of us here, Guided by the Holy Spirit, the church chose to guard grace. They chose to guard grace. See, grace is God's, God's heart for us, His wayward people. His grace is so scandalous that when Jesus was on earth, the Pharisees got mad at Him because He was hanging out with all of those people who were drunkens and gluttons, and he, they thought that He was just like them. But why did He do it? Because He wanted to give grace. The grace of God is so precious that Jesus says it's worth selling everything you have just to get a hold of it. But so often, the church adds something to grace, don't we? We say this, God will receive you if, if you clean up your sins, if you jump through these hoops, if, as in this passage, you get circumcised, if you look a certain way, if you take those tattoos off of you, if you follow all the right ceremonies, if you're just like us. 
For that reason, the church must always be on our guard, not against outsiders, against ourselves. We must guard against ourselves. It's from within the church that we water down grace. We're the ones who put up barriers. So, as we walk through this passage today, what we're going to see is there are going to be a number of characters that are going to pop up and personify the threats to grace. For, your out, for you outline people out there, we're going to look at it in three ways. First, God guards the grace of the gospel itself. Second, God guards the grace of the Scriptures. Third, God guards the grace of fellowship. So first, God guards the grace of the gospel itself. Let's just look again at verse 1, but. We know that any but in the text indicates a shift in tone, such as the case here. Paul and Barnabas had just concluded a very successful missionary journey to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were coming to faith en masse from Cyprus and Pisidia, Iconium and Lystra. Paul and Barnabas are on a high, but some men come down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be saved. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Now the Antiochian church is thrown into confusion. They thought that Jesus was our circumcision, that He was the one who was cut off so that we didn't have to do that anymore. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas arrive just in time. They have a debate with these men and decide to send a delegation up to Jerusalem to settle the matter. Now these first men who have come down from Judea are what theologians have historically called Judaizers. You've maybe heard that term before. It's a little bit of a misnomer because it paints Judaism as a religion of works, and we kind of forget that Jesus is our Jewish Messiah, right? But that's the name that is stuck. These Judaizers represent a group that's farthest away from the grace of God. They preach a salvation of Jesus plus you need to believe in Jesus, plus you need to get circumcised. You need to believe in Jesus, plus you have to follow all these laws in order to be saved. Faith is important, but you can't be saved unless you do all these other works as well. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul's had to deal with some of these instigators. In fact, in the NIV translation of Galatians, I like it the best, he is pretty agitated about it. Galatians 5, 12, this is what he says. I wish that these agitators who insist on circumcision would just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. It's pretty intense. Why is he so upset? Because when you add something to what Jesus has done for you, you diminish what Jesus has done for you, and you foreground what you do for yourself. That's why he's so upset. Paul's like, no, Jesus doesn't have any condition upon my salvation. He doesn't accept me once I do things for him. That wouldn't be good news. The good news of the gospel is that there are no conditions. You don't clean yourself before you come to Him. You don't prove that you're worthy. You don't impress God. You don't insist that anyone else has to either. The gospel is good news for the sinner who brings nothing but his need of grace. What does that mean for us simply? 
you don't have to fix anything about yourself before you come to God. You don't have to have your marriage sorted out. You don't have to have your debt refinanced. You don't have to have your kids perfect. You don't have to have your same-sex attraction in checked. You don't have to have your alcoholism under control. You don't have to have your workaholism in control. You just have to come to Jesus and say, I need grace. That's it. We come open-handed to Jesus Christ. The biggest tragedy that this world hears about Christianity is that we have to become religious before we become a Christian. And it's just not true. It's just not true. I tell this story in the first day of the intro class, so a couple of you have heard it before, but it's so good I'll say it again. In the mid, or excuse me, the early 1900s, there was a tightrope walker named the Great Blondine. The Great Blondine was such an incredible uh, trapeze artist or tightrope walker that he would string a rope across Niagara Falls and he could walk across Niagara Falls without any aids, up to 40 mile an hour wind just blowing like crazy. No big deal. The great blondine had it covered. He would perform other tricks. He would bring like a wheelbarrow with a bunch of stuff in it and take it across. He would bring a frying set and fry an egg and eat it in the middle of Niagara Falls on a tightrope. He was incredible. And one day he wanted to up the stakes. He said, okay. He showed all these things. And then he said, who thinks that I could carry someone across Niagara Falls on my back? And the whole crowd was like, yeah, I do. I think you could do it. And then he said, is there, is there any volunteer? <laughs> of course. <laughs> People were like, looking away, right? Then he takes his assistant. And his assistant, he says, okay, get on my back. But before they went over Niagara Falls, this is what he said to his assistant. There will be times when it feels like I am swaying. You will even feel like I might drop you. But if you try to steady yourself, if you try to save yourself, it will throw me off balance and we will both tumble to our deaths. Don't try to steady yourself. We will surely make it across alive. Now, amazingly, against every fiber of his being, the assistant just held on and the great blondine brought them both across unharmed. It's Jesus plus nothing that's going to get you to safety. It's Jesus him alone. He's the only one who can save you. You don't add to it. And if we try to add to it, we lose it. That's the grace of God that we need. It's the gospel in our hearts. It's the foundation for our lives. It's what we need to wake up with every morning believing God accepts me because of Jesus and what we go to sleep with every night. It's our hope. Don't add anything to His work. Just trust the good news. He'll bring you home. The next challenge to God's grace comes from some well-known antagonists. Peter and Barnabas and the Antiochian appointees, they go up to Jerusalem, they're talking, and most people are really excited, but then some people that we know, some old friends, verse 5, the Pharisees are a little unsettled. The Pharisees, you might remember, are the strictest adherents to the law of Moses, but there's something really important about them. Look at what the Holy Scripture calls them believers. They're believers. They truly believe in Jesus. This group isn't against Jesus. They've come to believe Him, and so they're not exactly like those Judaizers. In fact, 
They just believe, they believe in law's observance, they just don't believe it's necessary for salvation. And they actually make a rather good biblical argument. It's a good biblical argument. I'm saying this, once you become a believer, shouldn't you still follow God's law? After all, if you go back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 13, when God gave circumcision for the first time, this is what it says, "'He who is born in your house shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant.'" The Pharisees know their Bibles. They want to know. They want to know. Let's make sure, Paul, Barnabas, let's make sure this is biblical, this grace that you're teaching. If the Judaizers bring forward the central issue, the believing Pharisees are bringing forth the formal question, is salvation by grace alone biblical? Is circumcision ultimately our work, or is it God's work? Now, thankfully, Peter answers this question really well, verses 9 through 11. I'll just read them for us. And he made no distinction, that's God, made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that they will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as we will. Now, here's what he's saying. The sign of circumcision never really completed the ritual of circumcision. Circumcision was always about a circumcision of the heart. So, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, this is what he says, "'Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskins of your heart, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem.'" Even Moses in Deuteronomy 10, 16 says this, "'Circumcise your hearts. Don't be stubborn.'" Paul's letter to the Colossians sums it up, "'In Christ you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ.'" having been buried with Him in baptism. In other words, it was Jesus' work that cleansed your heart. He did what you couldn't do. Here's the takeaway. It's not just that it's salvation by grace alone in Christ alone. It's that every passage of Scripture actually speaks to that grace alone. Every passage of Scripture points to the grace that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If it was about us, we couldn't do it. Jesus is the one who completed all of the promises and laws of the Old Testament so that we could walk free. Now, let's face it. We often come and we hear the Word of God or the Scriptures, and the first thing we think is, okay, what do I need to do to be better today? Right? We come to church and we hear the Word preached and we think, okay, how can I be better? How can I grow? That's not a bad thing to ask per se, but it's not the first thing we should ask when we come to the Scriptures. Not what do I have to do, but, oh Lord, look at the wonderful things You have done. Not what do I have to do, but God, look at the wonderful things that You have done. Look at verse 12. The assembly starts to get it. They all fall silent. Then they listen, not to what Paul and Barnabas had done. What does it say? They listen to the signs and the wonders that God has done through them. 
Grace is that constant reworking of our lives from what do I have to do to look at what God has done. And it changes the melody of your life. Like, it's a bad melody in my life when I'm always beating the drum of this is what we've got to do. You know what a good melody in your life is? Not performance, but praise. That's a good melody in your life where every day you wake up and it's praise first, not performance first. But it's not always easy to have that mindset, is it? Peter can actually attest to that. The great apostle before this story was actually an example of what not to do. Peter failed to guard the grace of God in fellowship with others. We see him here in verse 7 extolling God, but there's a backstory. In the early days, around 10 years prior to this council, he baptizes Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, and he knows that God's grace is for Gentiles and Jews alike. But then he goes to Antioch and spends some time with the believers there, and he, when the Judaizers come, withdraws from fellowship with the Gentiles. He withdraws from fellowship with the Gentiles. You can read about it in Galatians chapter 2. He doesn't withdraw out of principle. He withdraws out of fear. He was afraid that if he associated with the Gentiles, he would upset his Jewish friends and hurt the Jewish mission. Now, I think we can all relate to Peter, and here's how. Our biggest temptation is not a position of Jesus plus something equals salvation. I think most of us know that it's Jesus plus nothing. But what about the posture that we have towards others? What about our posture? Let me illustrate it like this. I was talking to a friend, and he uh, goes to a traditional church, and he brought some non-believing friends with him to a church leader's house. So he's got some non-believing friends. These unbelievers are interested in meeting this church leader. They're ready to have some fellowship. They're going to ask some questions about the faith, right? It's this perfect like opportunity, okay? So the church leader stands up. He said, let's pray together. And so they all kind of bow their heads to pray. And then it gets awkward. No one says anything. My friend's like, why is he not praying? What's going on? And he kind of finally looks up and the church leader is doing this to him. And my friend was like, oh, I forgot to take off my hat. And like, I know that's like a little silly, right? Like, it's good. Take off your hat when we pray. That's a good thing. You know, it's culturally nice and acceptable. But please, please don't berate someone for not taking off their hat before you pray. What posture do we have towards people who are different from us? that actually communicates that it's Jesus plus something else. What's the posture? The way we welcome gives a glimpse into how God welcomes us. The grace we show is a dim but true reflection of the grace that Jesus shows people. When you're tempted to a Jesus plus posture, remember it's Jesus plus nothing else. And we can't unpack that too much more. So in your small groups or community groups that Bryant just beautifully talked about, I want you to be thinking this week and talking and chatting, okay, where is it where I foreground my cultural preferences, my posture before Jesus? James then concludes the proceedings in verse 13. He's the brother of the Lord, the chairman of the assembly. He speaks the final word. He says something really beautiful. In the Old Testament, 
The word for nations always refers to the Gentile outsiders. The word for people almost always refers to the Jews. So, for instance, Deuteronomy 14.2, you are a people, Jews, holy to the Lord out of all the nations, Gentiles. On the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you as His possession. But notice what James does. He actually flips the script. Simeon, foregrounding his Jewish name, has related how God first visits, visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for His name. That's what James is saying. God is now choosing the Gentiles as a people for His name too, not just the Jews. James guards the gospel of grace. And he backs it up with some Scripture in 16 through 18. He guards the grace of the Scriptures. Finally, James writes a judgment, verse 19. We should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. Now, that is, they don't need to get circumcised. And then he goes on. This is a kind of a difficult verse here, verse 20. But in my opinion, the best reading of this is that James is asking the Gentiles to abstain from four things, things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, food strangled, and with blood in it, as a representation of the Levitical holiness laws of chapter 17 and 18 in Leviticus. Okay, so let's break that down. Here's what he's saying. Gentiles, you're right. You don't need circumcision or anything else to be a Christian. But I now don't want you to think in terms first of salvation. I want you to think in terms of fellowship. Your Jewish brothers and sisters have been following God's holiness laws for generations. Love them well. Embrace some of their customs so that you can eat together and be in fellowship with one another. James guards the grace of fellowship. Now, this is one of God's great ideas. He's got a lot of them, but it's one of them. Christianity, Christianity not only can, but should be translated into a bunch of different cultures and languages. I had the great privilege of going to a Nigerian wedding a number of months ago. It was nothing like a Western wedding, and it was bathed in the grace and beauty of God. It was a beautiful experience. John Stott says this, from our later perspective of church history, we can see the crucial importance of this first ecumenical council held in Jerusalem. Its unanimous decision liberated the gospel from its Jewish swaddling clothes into being God's message for all humankind, and He gave the Jewish Gentile church a self-conscious identity as the reconciled body of God. Let me end with this. Look at all these different people. There's a bunch of different people in this passage, right? When grace and God's grace is operative, it takes all of these different people and it moves them closer together and binds them together in unity, right? After prayer and sharing and seeking the Spirit, these Pharisees, the theological sticklers, the Presbyterians, they're rejoicing in what God has done. That Peter, the one who withdrew from the Gentiles, is now the first to defend their inclusion. And then, Instead of sending a group of people who are Judaizers from Jerusalem to Antioch, they now send two prophets and leaders in the church, Judas and Silas, not to discourage Antioch, but to encourage Antioch. Finally, that wonderful apostle, that bullheaded apostle, the inflexible Paul. We don't read it yet, but in the very next chapter, he takes Timothy as an apprentice and then circumcises him. 
Not because he needs to circumcise him for salvation, but because he knows that if he submits to this ritual, it will aid his mission to the Jews. If even the inflexible Paul can grow, surely there's hope for the rest of us, right? Dear friends, guard grace. Guard the grace of the gospel. Guard the grace of the Scriptures. Guard the grace of fellowship with one another. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We ask, Lord Jesus, would You come by Your Spirit and help us. Help us to be a people of grace, not just in our position, but also in our posture. Do this, we pray, for Your sake, for the sake of the gospel to go forward to the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.